Well, good morning. Welcome to Ridge Stop Church. My name's Robert, and I'm the lead pastor here. We've been working our way through Ephesians. Uh, we're about to finish up chapter 2. And we've learned so far that every Christian is a saint, that is, a holy one, that that sainthood has been given to us as a gift. It's, it's by grace, and it's given to us through faith. And as we've been working our way through Ephesians, there's been these hints that God's not just doing something on an individual level, but on a communal level. And so even when we, when we got to the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, he prayed this. Uh, he says, and he put all things under his feet, talking about Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so even in, in chapter 1, when he's talking about this cosmic uh, renewal of all things, he's talking about the church and how Jesus is expressing that rule in some kind of a unique way through the community of Christians known as the church. And then last week, we got to the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and we, we, we heard this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that's like on the ground. So we've gone from this cosmic thing to this communal thing on a local level that's being expressed with these good works that the church is doing. And this is an incredibly exciting vision of what's possible in the community of faith that is the church. Um, and, and we read that, and I think a lot of us, by Remy, I see you back there. <laughs> okay, bye. So we, we see this individual communal vision, and we're like, hey, sign me up. Sign me up. I, I want to do that. I want to be a part of something like that. And then we look at the saints of the church. Saints, we're, we're struggling. We're struggling. We've got areas of sin that we can't seem to overcome. We've got cultural blinders that we can't seem to remove. We've got corruption all the way to the top in leadership. We've got gossip and infighting and in the churches where those things aren't happening, it's probably because those churches are apathetic. They don't care enough to have a fight over anything. This is the state <laughs> in a lot of, of churches, especially in America. And yet, this is God's plan for saving the world. There is no plan B. The church, this, this is what God is, is working through to institute His plan for bringing the world back to himself. Now, the church is not the only group trying to figure out how to live well together. There's a lot of conversations in our culture about this. How do we get people to unify across the political divide? How do we get people to unify across the racial divide? How do we get people to unify across the gender or the income or the culture or the linguistic divide? Lots of divides, Try, trying to figure out how do we unify a, a, a disunified people. I mean, in, in America, we think this is something that we're good at, right? It's on our money. We, we have this e pluribus unum on our money. Out of many, one. This is what we claim is what we do here in the U.S. of A. Now, there is an answer to how disunified peoples can be unified, and I'm sad to say it's not America. <laughs> that, is, that is not the ultimate answer for how disunified people become unified. It doesn't mean that you ought not try to unify on a political, national, community level. Absolutely. It's part of how we thrive as human beings, but it is not the ultimate answer to the question of how you unify the disunified. This passage that we just read tells us how we unify the disunified. Now, 
this is a seemingly insurmountable challenge for the, the church of, of Ephesus. They have two, oh, in general, two uh, demographics in their church who are divided. The Jews and the non-Jews, which the Jews not so affectionately called the Gentiles. Right? So you've got this serious divide in this church of Ephesus. It's a cultural divide. Uh, they've got different music and art and food and clothes and politics. Their history is different. Culturally, they're divided. They're linguistically divided. Even though they probably all spoke you know, Koine ancient Greek, that was not the heart language of the Jews that were in that church. The way they would express themselves, especially religiously, would have been through Aramaic. They were religiously divided. Even if they believed in the same truth, which if they were in the church, you would say, yes, they, they believe in the same Jesus. But everything else about the way they do religion is different. They, what they've grown up with is, is different. And so they're religiously divided between Jew and non-Jew. They're morally divided. I mean, the, 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 the Jews had grown up thinking, it's wrong to eat shellfish and bacon. Thou shalt not do that, right? The non-Jews are like, bacon's awesome. Like, what's, what's the problem, right? While the, the Gentiles are thinking, it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to pagan idols. And the Jews are going, what are you thinking? How could you do that, right? And so even morally, it's, it's murky, like, how do they get through this divide of moral, religious, linguistic, and cultural? Paul calls this kind of lattice work of division the dividing wall of hostility. That's, that's not just a surface-level disagreement. This is not just a surface-level, we have some cultural differences. This is hostility. And it's a, it's a lattice work. It, there's so many threads that make up this wall of hostility. So how could a people like that, who are so disunified, become unified? And, and, and the way that this is described here, it's not like an option, it's a command. That as, as believers, as Christians, as saints, they're being commanded to live in unity with each other, even though there's all these divides. Now, the way the pa passage is set up is similar to last week, where he starts off talking about pre-saint identity, then the saintly identity, and then how do we live now that we're saints? So last week, it was more individual. Who were we before we were saints? Who are we now as a saint? And how do we live now that we are saints? And this time, it's communal. Who were we before we were saints? Communally with each other, Jew-Gentile. And now, who are we now as saints, as a community, now that we are Christians? And now, how do we go about living that out, that we are saints, that we have this state of sainthood? So these are three points. If you're looking to kind of have some hooks to hang this on, pre-saint state of disunity, saintly state of unity, and the community of saints. So let's look at the first one, pre-saint state of disunity. Try to say that three times fast. It's hard. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was their pre-state, the pre-saint state, right, as a community. They were uncircumcised, right? So circumcision was something practiced by the Jews. It was a way to mark, not just that they were uh, believing in the God of the Jews, but that they were part of the covenant community of the Jews. And every little boy at, at age, uh, day eight, was circumcised. It was a way to, to mark you were part of 
the Jewish nation. You were part of the, the, the people of God. And it was a clear demarcation of us and them. And it was meant to be. But it was more than a physical mark. It was a physical mark that was expressing an invisible reality. It says here that the Gentiles were separated from Christ. It wasn't that they just weren't circumcised, that spiritually they were separated from Christ. They were without hope and without God in the world. They're like, well, how does being separated from Christ make you without hope and without God in the world? Well, because without Christ, they were spiritually dead. We talked about this last week where when you're, when you're dead, you can't communicate with other human beings. When you're spiritually dead, you can't relate with God. And so the only way that they could become spiritually alive and actually be able to relate with God was through Christ. And so they don't, they, they're separated from Christ, therefore they are without God. Um, but how could the Jews be connected with Christ? Hold that question. We'll talk about that later. Um, because that is what he's saying, that, that the people of God of the Old Testament are somehow connected to Christ. Paul goes on, uh, the Gentiles weren't just separated from God, they were separated from God's people. Right? They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is their pre-saint state. Uh, the commonwealth, um, this, this word basically means the citizenship. Right? It, it, it comes from a, the, 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 word, the root word polis or, or city. So it's like the citizenship of the city. It's saying you were alienated from the citizenship of the city. And, and, and that matters because there's rights and privileges that go with being a citizen right, of, of Israel. Um, think about it this way. American citizens have certain rights and privileges. They, they can vote in elections. Uh, they can travel with an American passport, which gets, gets you into a lot of, a lot of places. Uh, they have a whole bill of rights that protects them. Uh, they, they, they can run for office. Uh, if they have a child, that child is automatically American citizen. It has nothing to do with who, who, who they, you know, what, what they've done or not done. It, it, it's just because you're an American citizen, your kids are now American citizens. Right? You're part of the commonwealth of the United States. America, but here he's talking about something much more uh, important, the commonwealth of, of God's people. And so he said, well, what are the rights and privileges that the, the non-Jews didn't have because they were disconnected from the commonwealth? Well, he says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. This is what they didn't have. This is what the, the rights and privileges that they were not afforded because they were not a part of God's people. Uh, it says, stranger to covenants, plural, of promise. Um, God had been relating to Israel through covenants throughout the Old Testament. And so you get Abraham, and you got Moses, and you got David. Those are the big, the big three. Um, you've got these covenants that are the means through which the people of God are relating with God. It's the way that they express faith in God. Is, is by participating in these covenants. This is how Israel was, quote, saved, is, is by putting faith in the covenant-keeping God through these covenants. And so this is what kept them connected to Christ. It's through their faith in the God of the covenants that put their faith forward into Jesus. Now, we look back at what Christ did for us on the cross, and we faith, we faith backward, right? But, but the people of God were faithing forward, and they were doing that by participating in these covenants that God made with them. But the, the Gentiles did not, they did not have that. They did not have this opportunity to, to relate with God through faith, through the means of the covenants. You say, was that really a big deal? Uh, yes, it's a big deal, right? Again, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. This is the predicament that they were in, in their pre-saint state. Now, it was always God's plan to bring about people from all the different nations into the people of God. This seems clear in that first covenant 
We actually studied this last semester when we looked at Genesis 12, where God says to, a- to Abram, he says, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is all, already thinking as, he, as he's talking to Abraham, he's making this covenant, he's like, I'm playing for the whole world here. I'm going to draw people from the whole world into the people of God. And then you see this thread throughout the Old Testament. Even when they're leaving Egypt, right, they, God has sent 10 plagues. He's rescued them out from Pharaoh and out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 38 says, a mixed multitude also went up with them. <laughs> Everyone who left Egypt was not just Jewish. They weren't checking birth certificates. Hey, are you in the line of Abraham? Okay, you can go forward. It, they were just, it was just a whole mass of humanity coming out of Egypt. And it was Jews and non-Jews. Even then, God was drawing people that were outside of the Jewish nation into his people. Rahab the Canaanite, who protected the, uh, the Hebrews that came out as the spies and looked out in, in, in the promised land to see what it was like. And Rahab protected them. Well, she and her family are gathered into the people of God. She's actually in the family line of Jesus, right? So is Ruth the Moabite. Moabites have a really, really bad start, really horrible history. And yet Ruth is like great-great-grandmother to David and eventually to Jesus, right? So she's gathered into, her and her family, gathered into the people of God. There's a whole city of Ninevites under the uh, ministry of Jonah. Get gathered into the people of God. There's an Aramean commander named Naaman who had leprosy and was healed of that leprosy under the ministry of Elisha. He gets gathered into the people of God. A Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar who after having some experiences with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and later Daniel, and decides, I think the God of Israel is the true God, and declares that to his country. They being gathered into the people of God. There are others in the Bible. Definitely there are others that weren't even written about in the Bible. As you see this unfolding plan, even in the Old Testament, God's gathering people who are not in the Israeli nation by blood. He's he's gathering them into his people. And so that was always his intention. But for the most part, most non-Jews were separated from God, from God's people. And so they were alienated from the commonwealth. They were strangers to the covenants of the promise until something massive happens in the first century. And this is where we get to the saintly state of unity. So Ephesians 2:13. But now there's that but now, right? There's a little shift there. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So this is the saintly state in terms of the community uh, of of, of what what Christ has has accomplished, right? And so it's similar to last week where we said we go from the state of death to the state of life. Now we're going from from the, the state of alienation and separation to the state of unity, with God and each other, you can just kind of see the, the comparison, the contrast, right? In the, the state of un- disunity list, far off, divided by hostility, divided by the law expressed in ordinances, like circumcision being one of those ordinances. In the state of unity, near, at peace, and one, one new man. Um, this dividing wall uh, illustration is very, very powerful, and, and walls are very symbolic, uh, and they still are to this day, right? We're still talking about walls and building walls and not building walls and 
and what that means. And, and the wall that came to mind uh, to me, this is when I was in college, before most of you were born, I know, um, the Berlin Wall came down. 1989. The reason that was such a big deal is because the Soviet Union what was crumbling and East Berlin and West Berlin had been separated by a wall because East Berlin was, was Soviet uh, territory and the West, uh, West Berlin was Germany, right? And so the wall came down and all these amazing pictures of this wall being, being torn down and people being able to be in the same city, East and West uh, Berlin, and it's it was a pretty amazing moment and very symbolic of just larger things that were happening in the world. Now, East and West Berlin was essentially the same-ish people. I mean, there was families on either side of this wall who were kind of getting to be able to come back together and and be with each other uh, all the time. That's not really what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about is more. Like, let's say the wall, the, the, the wall goes down between Palestine and Israel, and they become one. That's what he's talking about. That's more the kind of cultural divide that we see in the Ephesian church between Jew and Gentile. And they're being taught that they can become one. Now, how is that? Is it something political, societal? No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You you know how to fix you know, Israel and Palestine? Lead them all to Christ and put them together in the church. Right? That, that's, the, that's the ultimate way. That's, that's the true way that any divided group, groups of humans could ever be one. Is in Christ. It's in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is saying can happen in the Ephesian church and can happen today. Now, how did this saintly state of oneness. How did this come about? Well, he says, by the blood of Christ, a payment has been made for sins. And those sins have been forgiven. Because those sins have been forgiven, there can now be reconciliation. This would be like you, you and a friend have, have, have had a, a falling out and one has hurt the other. Well, how are you going to reconcile that relationship? Well, there's going to have to be the giving and receiving of forgiveness. And the only way that we can truly give and receive forgiveness uh, between us and God is through Christ because he pays the debt that we owe because of our sin against God. But it doesn't just reconcile us with God. It reconciles us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's by the blood of Christ. And then he says, uh, the, the word he uses for this reconciliation is peace, that Jesus is our peace He's letting them know the only way that Jews and Gentiles could come together in, as, as one is in Jesus. He is our peace. And he says he's broken down the wall. Remember, he talked about dividing wall of hostility. He's broken down that wall in his flesh. Um, and so the, the image is that Jesus is taking two humans and making them one. This is the opposite of what we see in Genesis 2, where we see Adam, one human, made into two. Now we have two being made into one. And this is, this is the image. One body, one human. And again, Jesus is the one who's doing that by his blood. Um, he goes on to explain it more in Ephesians 2.16. He says, and, and might reconcile, so there he uses the word reconcile, us both to God in one body, that one human body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. And through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, this sheds more light on what his death, his blood is actually accomplishing, right? He's, and this, this is a play on words here. He's saying Jesus' death on the cross kills the hostility. It kills the, 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 the wall of hostility that is between Christian Jew and Christian Gentile. One way to see this is, is that he's showing the Jews and the Gentiles they have a solidarity they have a solidarity of sin, and they have a solidarity of salvation. There's a lot of talk of, the, of, of solidarity in our 
in our culture. And it, and it basically means unity. Um, Wikipedia says this about solidarity. It's an awareness of shared interests, objectives, standards, and sympathies, creating a psychological sense of unity of groups or classes. Solidarity does not reject individuals and sees individuals as the basis of society. It refers to the ties in a society that bind people together as one. So interesting, it uses the ties of, that bind. That's an old hymn, <laughs> blessed be the ties that bind. That when we have solidarity with someone else, there's some kind of ties. There's something we hold in common that binds us in that unity. And so what Paul is saying is the ultimate ties that bind a divided humanity is solidarity in, in, in their understanding of their sin and solidarity in their understanding of their salvation, their saving from that sin. Now, it doesn't mean you can't experience other solidarities. Absolutely, you can. And this can be very appropriate. I'm experiencing much more solidarity with my fellow longhorns lately, right? You know, just the horns go up a lot more here uh, than they did when I lived in Massachusetts. They never went up, right? And now they just keep coming up. I mean, every time I take a picture, everybody's like, horns up. Um, there's some solidarity there, right? I'm experiencing um, some solidarity with my fellow Austinites, right? Keep Austin weird, man, right? I'm feeling some solidarity with my fellow Texans. I have the urge to buy a Texas flag. Just fly that thing, right? <laughs> when I lived in Massachusetts, I never flew a Texas flag ever at any time. Um, but, but there's like this, this solidarity. And some people feel those solidarity. Some people don't. That's okay. We got a few Aggies in the crowd. You know, hey, it's okay. You don't, you don't, you don't want to have solidarity with the Longhorns? That's totally, totally fine. Totally appropriate. Um, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with experiencing solidarities that have a whole lot higher stakes as well. Solidarities that are ethnic, political, causal. These things can be really meaningful, very profound, very helpful, life-giving, can make changes in the world that we live in. But only the solidarities of sin and salvation can make any divided humans truly one. These are the only ones. All humans are sinners. We all stand in solidarity <laughs> as sinners before a holy God. That sin separates us from that holy God. It also separates us from each other. We stand in solidarity in that. Notice that Jesus preached peace to those who were far off. That's the Gentiles. And he preached peace to those who are near. That's the Jews. He's saying everyone needs Jesus. Everyone is a sinner standing in need of grace that comes from Christ. There's, there's no exceptions. And so there's a solidarity in that need. Um, Paul says this in Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You can hear it. It's the solidarity. We all have this same problem. We are sinners before a holy God. But we're also, we also share the solidarity of salvation, right? In verse 18, chapter 2, he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both have this salvation through him, through Jesus. We both, through Jesus, now are children of the Father. And we're filled with the Spirit of God. The whole Trinity is involved in that uh, verse right there. And that means we're now siblings. If we're now children of the Father through Christ, then we're brothers and sisters. And we're brothers and sisters for eternity. There may be some fellow Christians in here, you're like, yeah, I don't like them that much. You're going to be with them forever. I'm just saying. Now, we'll be in a much glorified, more glorified state, so maybe that'll be easier to hang out. But, but I'm telling you, this, this, this thing that we're doing here, like, it's eternal. 
That's, that has more permanence than some of your biological family, okay? Now, if your biological family are believers, there'll be a turn, it'll be an eternal relationship too. But this, this is eternal, what we're doing. And we all got here the same way, right? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. And so that's true for the Jew, even though they circumcised and had covenants and had religious rituals and things that they had grown up doing. That was true of the Gentiles who were far from that. Everyone is saved by grace and through faith, right? Solidarity of sin, solidarity of salvation. And so we, see, we saw Jesus last week descending into death to scoop us up out of our deadly state and bring us into life and seat us in the heavenlies. Now we see him descending down into the divided world of humanity and scooping us up and by his grace making us one. And that community is a community of saints that is now and it is forever. This is also what Jesus is doing by the cross. He's making a community of saints. And so this doesn't dismiss the differences that we experience in our different cultures. Like these things, these are beautiful things, right? The diversity that God has created in different cultures, different races, all the differences are, are, are ways of reflecting His glory. And this is good. This is good. The diversity can't be brought into oneness, though, by just appreciating diversity. This is partly what America is figuring out. We just say diversity is important, diversity is important, diversity is important. We've got to be diverse, got to be diverse. It's not working, right? There must be a tie that binds that's stronger than we appreciate diversity. And this is the solidarity of sin, solidarity of salvation. And so um, Christ is, is, is giving us his solidarity. Now, he's, he's doing something in addition to just some solidarity. He is accomplishing a spiritual reality, right? You notice a lot of this is just in the past tense. He, he's just saying it's already done. It's already been accomplished by Jesus, right? That Christ has actually made you one. And I'm sure the Ephesians are going, I don't feel like I'm one. <laughs> We're struggling here. <laughs> We're fighting. We're, we're really wrestling with these divides. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It has been accomplished in the spiritual realm. Christ has accomplished this unity. He has made peace. It's done. And he did that at the cross. The challenge for the church is to actualize what has been accomplished. Jesus has accomplished it already. If we're Christians, we're reconciled to the Father through the Son and filled with His Spirit, it's accomplished. Now the task is to actualize what is true about us as Christians and about us as the Christian church. So how do you, how do, you do that? Right? Paul gives us some insight. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 through 22. So then, so here we are, another, another idea here he's, he's starting to tell us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, he's likening the church to the temple. And this is literally holy ground, right? Like this temple thing, like this is where you make a pilgrimage to, to be up close and personal with the presence of God. And now he's saying, guess where the new temple is? It's the church. And it's built and it's being built. It's accomplished and it's in the process of being actualized, right? Verse 20, you are built on the foundation. That means it's, it's already done. But then verse 22, you're being built together. Which is it, Paul? It's both. It's both. It's a state, but then we're also seeking to live that state out, right? Work in progress. And so those who are Christians in a local church 
were built and were being built. We're being built through our faith in the Son of God, who are now children of the Father, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is accomplishing something mystical in the community that is the local church. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that that's what he's doing here in this little church, Rich Top. Again, it's like, sign me up. I want to do that. I want to I be a part of that. And then again, we go, but look at the church. Oh, wow. We're a mess. I know some of you have been asking me about um, what happened at the Austin Stone this past week. Aaron Ivey, who they're like their lead worshiper, been there for years and years, and uh, has written some really great music. And uh, he was fired this past week because he had been sending uh, sexually explicit texts to uh, some, some people that were in the church, some of which were minors. He's also married. He's got kids. It's, it's tragic, right? And we, and we look at that, and, and, and we're, it's discouraging, right? But it's also, I think, for, for me and leaders in the church, it's like a cautionary tale, right? It's like, oh, my God, except for the grace of God, go me, right? Like this, this, this is, we're a mess. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on Austin Stone. Have mercy on Rich Stop Church and every other church who's trying to be built <laughs> and accomplish or, or, or actualize the very thing that has been already accomplished. We're a work in progress, right? There's areas of sin that we're struggling with. There's cultural blinders we can't remove or seemingly. There's corruption. There's gossip. There's infighting. And when there's not those things, there's oftentimes just apathy. Don't care enough to fight about what is true. But at the same time, we're being built. We're in, the, we're in a work in progress. So how are we being built? He tells us in here the basics of how a church is being built. Uh, the Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. He says you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus, the chief cornerstone. So all that's foundation language. Both the cornerstone language and the foundation, obviously, is foundation language. It says foundation. Um, you didn't pour a foundation out of, you know, cement in the ancient world. Yeah, you found a big rock, and then you built whatever you were going to build on that big rock, and that was your cornerstone. And so it's talking about Jesus is the big rock. It's the cornerstone. So when Jesus says in Matthew 16, upon this rock, I will build my church. talking about himself. He's talking about himself. But yet, what is this apostle-prophet thing? How does that fit together? Well, it's Paul's way of saying the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophets is a way to say the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scripture. The apostles is the way to say the New Testament Scripture, because that's who basically wrote the New Testament. And that through that Scripture, the church is teaching and preaching Christ, who is the cornerstone. This, this, these are the basics of how you build up uh, the church, and how God builds up the church. Jesus himself taught this to the disciples. Uh, Luke 24, he's, he's resurrected. He's uh, kind of debriefing with them, and he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with, uh, from Jerusalem. And so this is the resurrected Jesus. And he's giving them a Bible study. He's, he's taking them back to the Old Testament. He's teaching Christ, Christ teaching Christ from the Old Testament. Right? And so it's, it's, it's the Scripture's. Uh, Old Testament and New, and he is preparing the apostles who are in that Bible study to then write the New Testament, right? And they're writing down the teachings of Christ, and they're interpreting the teachings of Christ and helping us to understand those better. The Apostle Paul thinks the same way. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. 
And then he tells them what that gospel is. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So you see Paul doing the same thing. He's, he's preaching Christ, and he's saying this comes from the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. And so the church is built, and it is being built on the preaching and teaching of Christ from the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may have been asking yourself, why does Robert always just talk about the Bible? What's the big deal? I mean, there's other things we could be talking about, right? Why did he do Old Testament last semester? Genesis, really? I mean, come on. There's a lot of great stuff in the New Testament. Because this is how you build up the church, is you preach Christ from the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? This is, this is how we, we lay foundation. This is how we build up on that foundation. And you may be thinking, why does Robert always land on Jesus in every sermon? Like, you've, you've been here long enough. You're like, I know where he's going. I know where he's going. He's going to land on Jesus. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. That Jesus is in every text in the Bible, Old Testament and New. If you're preaching that text correctly, you're going to land on Jesus every time. Because he's the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. This is how the church is, is built up in Christ. Right? And it's not just Sunday morning. It's small group discussion. It's uh, doing one-on-one conversations in an informal way. It's discipleship groups. It's members meetings. It's retreats. It's classes. It's the book table back there. If you can pick up one of those books, it's going to be talking to you about how Scripture points to Jesus, whatever the topic is. That's what it's going to tell you, okay? And so this is how the church is built. This is how we, who are such a mess, are built up into the temple of God. But it's not just Scripture and Christ being preached and taught from the Scripture, but there's also the Holy Spirit. You see that? Ephesians 2.22, In Him, you also, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Whole Trinity is in that verse. In Him, talking about Jesus, you're being built up together into a dwelling place for God, that's the Father, by the Spirit. And so he's letting us know, again, something mystical is happening in the church. As Christ is being preached and taught and discussed from the Bible, the Spirit is at work building us up. God is dwelling with us in a tangible way through the work of the Holy Spirit. So again, the basics of understanding how God is creating this community of saints is it takes saints, okay? So first of all, actual Christians that actually genuinely believe in Jesus. This is why membership's important because we're, we're trying to discern where people are at. Do they understand the gospel? Have they responded with, with faith? Do we always know 100%? No, but we're doing our best to, to welcome people in who actually understand the gospel and have trusted in Christ in a genuine way. Those are the, the, the members of the Church of Ridgetop, right? We've got to have saints. We've got to have saints. We also need Scripture, both Old and New Testament, preaching, teaching, discussing, equipping through the Scripture, pointing to Jesus through the, the, the Scripture, and then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit present to illuminate Christ in the Scriptures, convicting the saints of sin, comforting the saints in our suffering, empowering saints to serve both in the church and also on mission in the world. He's, he's active. He's involved. This is the plan A. There is no plan B. I'm telling you, this, it, this is where the action is. You, you want to see God at work, front row seat? It's in the church, local church, preaching and teaching Christ in the Scriptures and the Spirit actively working, actively working. So how do I respond to this? I think there's a number of ways, but here's a few. One is join Christ by faith this morning. This is where it all begins. You who were once far off and, and strangers without hope, without God, this morning, you can no longer be a stranger and an alien and without hope and with God through Christ. You can be brought into relationship with God and with his people. So if you've not yet done that, I want to encourage you to put your faith in Christ. If you're still like, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, reach out. Let's talk more about it. Maybe there's someone in the room that 
you know as a Christian that you could talk more about it. But this is, this is where it begins, is, is joining uh, Jesus uh, through faith. And then join his church. Join his church. Again, if you, if you want to experience front row seat to, to the work of God in this world, you want to be a part of a local church. You don't just want to dabble in, in different churches, different ministries. You, you want to de- devote yourself. And so if it's not this church, go to another church. Join that church. Join the church. And by join, I don't just mean, you know, sign a dotted line, but, but join the family of that particular local congregation. Pour yourself out in love for those other saints and they for you. Right? Th- this is where it's at, right? Join Jesus. Join a church. Um, read your Bible. Is it that simple? Yeah, no, in a lot of ways. It is. Read your Bible individually and communally. This is how God is building up His church, is through the Scriptures. And so your intake of Scripture is so important, both for you as an individual, but also us as a community. And so when you're walking into your small group and you've reflected on, on the Scripture that's going to be discussed and, and been prayerful about it, and you walk in, and then you got something to offer your brothers and sisters in Christ, like, like that's, that's where it's at, right? Join Jesus, join his church, read your Bible individually and communally, and then cooperate with God's initiation with you by his spirit. This is what happens. You start reading your Bible individually, communally, devote yourself to church. Spirit starts working in some fresh ways. I'm not saying that he can't work in someone who's not part of a local church or whatever, but, but, but he's going to start doing some, some new things in your life. And then you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be, begin to feel convicted or, or initiated with by the Spirit. You think, I really should reach out to so-and-so and encourage them or pray for them or, or, or be their friend or, or whatever. And do it. Do it. I love the other, other day, some, some of the, um, the, the college women from UT decided we're going to have a pancake thing. And we're, we're just going to invite people before Sunday morning, have a pancake thing, right? That was not officially rich talk, you know, sanctioned event, right? But they just said, we're going to do this thing. And, and somebody offered up their apartment, and somebody else did the cooking, and it was awesome, right? And so just allowing the, the, the Spirit to initiate with you and saying yes as He initiates with you. We're reminded of this individual communal reality every time we come to this table. It's interesting that when Jesus instituted this, he didn't ha- set up a one-on-one, co- you know, coffee, not really drinking coffee, but one-on-one, you know, wine tasting with each, each disciple, you know, and say, I just want to have a, an intimate time with you. No, he's, sitting, he's standing in the room with these guys. He's standing with a community, and they're a wreck. Yeah, you think the American church was bad. I mean, these guys are really bad. <laughs> And he's looking out over them, and, he, and, he, and he's, he's thinking about what he's going to have to do tomorrow in order to be peace for them, both their peace with God and their peace with each other. And later, their peace with Gentiles that they don't even realize they're going to have to be brothers with. <laughs> and on that night in which he was going to be betrayed by one of his 12, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Part of what's happening here, we have one loaf is is the idea that's being broken and received by the brothers and sisters in the church. It's a sign of this unity that we have because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new, new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's letting them know, this, this, this thing we've been doing in Old Testament, it was good and it was important and God sanctioned it. It's now giving way to a new covenant. And that new covenant is providing a way for us not to only have peace with God in Christ, but peace with each other. And that, that through what Christ has done, he, he is unifying a group of people that would have never even been in the same room with each other had it not been for Jesus. I think he's doing that here at Ridgetop to some degree. I think he's doing that at Ridgetop. 
And it's not because we're like, we're going to be diverse and we're putting it on the website, right? It, it's, we're going we're gonna to be one with Christ. And we're going to reach out and we're going to love and we're going to bring in everybody. And we're going to be brothers and sisters together. And is it hard? Yeah, some days it's going to be hard. But I'm telling you, th- this is what Jesus is about. He, he is making a people for himself from every tribe, nation, tongue, culture. He wants to see all those divides coming down because of what he's done at the cross. And it displays to the world how good and glorious that gospel is. And so th- this, is, this is my hope. This is my prayer. And I, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing glimpses of it. It's starting to happen. The Lord is doing this thing here that uh, I think will display his glory to Austin and beyond. Let's pray. God, the truths in this passage are way beyond me, way, way beyond anything I can do in my own strength. It's way beyond anything that our church could ever do in our own strength. And we just confess that. We, we default to being divided, Lord. We default to being with people that are like us and sound like us. And, and so we are grateful for the work you have done in our hearts that have caused us to be more, at, more, more unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know we have a lot of, of growing to do, God. So I pray these truths would just sink down deep into our hearts and minds this morning. Thank you that you've already accomplished it. This isn't something we have to work ourselves into. Like, you've done it. So by your grace, Lord, help us to actualize it. And we give you all the glory and praise for that because we know, especially when we look around at the world, there's no way for divided humans to become one except by your grace. So God, would you do that? Thank you for the price that you paid, that you accomplished this in your flesh by letting your your body be broken, your blood poured out in order for us to not just be at peace with you, but be at peace with each other. So thank you that we get to celebrate that as we take this bread and cup and be reminded of this just beautiful reality, God. And we pray that we would lean into it and live into it in even greater ways uh, because of how good this gospel is. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.